Luke chapter 18. This morning I'm going to be starting a sermon series titled, No Rich Men in Heaven. I have spent six months preparing for this sermon series, which for me personally is a pretty long time to prepare. It's going to be three sermons. Today's obviously part one, and I want to encourage you to pray for me throughout this sermon series, um, and as well to be praying for you. God would open your heart to the things that I'm going to share. I'm going to say some things. You're going to hear some things. They're going to be very difficult for you to process. Uh, very difficult um, for all of us. It's been difficult for me. That's why I've taken six months um, just to make sure in my heart and my mind that this was, uh, this was what God wanted us to go through. Luke chapter 18, would you please stand with me as we honor together the reading of the Word of God? I'm going to have you guys that are in place just stay put for a few moments. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad For he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with with God. Let us pray. Father, this morning we come to your word and really to the start of a sermon series and ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to believe you. Open our hearts to just read your word and believe what it says. I pray that you would anoint me, Lord, this morning to preach in the power and in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. God, help me to rightly divide the word of truth. Help me to teach in such a way that every hearer understands the word this morning. Save the lost. Be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. While this sermon series is titled, No Rich Men in Heaven... It has very little to do with riches, very little to do with wealth. This entire series is about heaven, and for that matter, hell. It is about eternity, and more specifically, how to get there. The rich young ruler asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That was the question, how do I go to heaven? What I want to do this morning is I want you to get a picture in your mind of this particular 
string, and I'm going to reference it a handful of times this morning and in the weeks to come. What I have here, this small red portion of the line, represents your life. It has a beginning and an end, and then eternity. And this line here represents an eternity without end. What I want you to do is get the visual in your mind of just really how tiny your life is compared to eternity. And the question is, what must I do in this life to be sure that I have eternity with Jesus ahead of me? That was the question that was asked. What must I do? And the amazing thing, I want you to see this visual. The amazing thing is, is that Jesus gave the answer. He said, here's what you must do. And the answer caused so much problem for this man that what he was asked to do in this little portion of his existence was so great to him that he chose not to, and he chose to say no to an eternity in heaven. I want you to get the visual that we are dealing with in this sermon series, not so much this life, but this one. And what happens in this life impacts what happens in this one. You got the visual? All right, you guys can find a way to unput all that up or something. <laughs> and uh, when you're done, you can be seated. I want to read to you quickly again the last part of our text when Jesus said that it is uh, more difficult. It is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I have heard over the years a handful of explanations to try to help wrap our mind around this text. And most of them are just simply weak. One of the um, probably most common, you may have heard it if you've been in church any length of time, is that there was supposedly this entrance into a wall to get into Jerusalem and that a camel couldn't really get through it. It would have to humble itself and get down and go through this small opening in order to get into it. It's just not true. There's actually no historical evidence that such a thing ever existed. It's, it's just not true. When Jesus made this statement, the eye of the needle that he's referencing is, in fact, the eye of a sewing needle. And when he says it's as hard for a rich person to be saved as it is for a camel to go through that, he meant exactly what he said, it is impossible. Jesus goes on to actually use that word, impossible, clarifying for us that he wasn't saying it's, you know, pretty difficult, you just got to humble yourself and go through a little door. He's saying the rich cannot be saved. Now, this is a really, really important thing that we deal with now. Because I'm going to submit to you that all of us here 
are rich. That this passage applies to us all. The the, the statistics I'm going to give you here, I'm going to spend about two minutes on statistics this morning. The statistics that I'm going to give you have already been adjusted for cost of living. Like the difference in cost of living in other countries, the difference in cost of what a dollar is versus other currencies, all of those things have already been computed with the information I'm about to tell you. So it's accurate and correct. A typical American earns 10 times the income by the typical person in the world. Someone in the poverty line or at the poverty line in the United States is still in the top 14% of income globally. So where we determine poverty starts here in this country, whatever that income is, If that is you, you still have more wealth than than 86% of the rest of the world. A groundbreaking study by the group Just Facts discovered that the poorest 20% of Americans, so let's settle on who we're talking about, just that group of people, There's about 350 million of us here in America. If you were to take only the poorest 20%, that group of people consume more annually than any other people group on the planet, even in the wealthiest nations. Our poorest 20%, when you account for government subsidies, Welfare, food stamps, the income they do have, what they purchase, what they consume is the right word for it, annually is more than any other average people group in any nation on earth. Our poorest 20%. So comparatively, it's very important to understand All of us are rich. What we tend to do is is determine rich and poor based upon the society we live in. And so what we'll do is, you know, we'll look at the, you know, few hundred people we know, and we'll put ourselves somewhere on that spectrum. And if we're at the bottom of that spectrum, we're poor. And whoever's at the top of that spectrum is rich. But it's important. This This is why this is important. We're dealing with heaven and hell. Jesus said it's impossible for a rich person to be saved. Not rich in, uh, you know, how you compare to your friends, but rich, period. And I am convinced that the likelihood that every single human in this room would fall into the category of top 10% of wealth on earth. So if we were to take a look at all 7 billion people and put off to the side the top 10% richest people of all of them, every one of us would fall in that category. And so this is really important because Jesus said we can't be saved.
this week, as I start this sermon series, I'm telling you, I'm going to say some stuff that's going to be hard. Because Jesus meant what he said. I believe this book. I'm going to prove to you over the next three weeks he meant what he said. And I'm going to prove to you rich people can't go to heaven. You can't. If you're rich, you're going to hell. The question is why? That's the question. What is meant by it? And it's going to take me about three weeks to fully unpack this. Jesus meant exactly what he said. Jesus didn't look back over his life and think, man, that one teaching, I really got that one wrong. I should have said that way different. No, Jesus is the master of words. And what he said, he said very clearly, and he meant what he said. And so over the next three weeks, I'm going to deal with this. Today, we're going to deal with what I'm going to call all or nothing. Next week, we're going to deal with the rich fool. And in the final week, which is probably going to be the most important as far as wrapping your mind all around this, we're going to deal with what I will call the link between salvation and stewardship. But I want to encourage you to be praying for me in the weeks to come, to be praying for yourself, and I want to encourage you to read Luke chapter 18 through Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. I would encourage you to read that at least once a week. It's not a huge read. You really want to start to wrap your mind around what's happening here. I would encourage you to read it every day. As we go through this sermon series, read it every day, one chapter, chapter 18, plus the first 10 verses of chapter 19, and start to see this big picture of salvation. Today, what I want to do is kind of get the the ball rolling with the question of, what is going on here? Like, what is happening? What is this really about when Jesus says it's impossible? I mean, with God, all things are possible, but it's impossible. Just as it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, it's impossible for people of wealth, you and I, to be saved. Why? What is he talking about? We have to remember concerning heaven, concerning the kingdom, we have to remember that God gets to set the terms. Not you and I. We don't get to decide how we get to heaven. We don't get to decide who goes and who doesn't. We don't get to decide the rules. God sets the terms. It's his kingdom, his heaven, and he alone is the one who has the right to say, here is how you get in. And he says it's impossible for those with wealth to enter. Why? What's really going on here? Number one this morning, if you're a note taker, write down, it is about nothing coming before God. It is about nothing coming before God. It really has very little to do with wealth and a lot more to do with there being nothing in our lives that comes before God. 
you're going to see that God has this ability to put his finger right on the thing in your life that comes before him. In this particular man's case, it was his wealth. The fact that he went away sorrowful tells us Jesus was bingo, hit the nail on the head, knew exactly what the one thing, that's what he said was, right? He said, there's just one thing you lack. Let that sink in. He was close. Man, that's close. What must I do to inherit eternal life? One thing, just one. That's close. And Jesus knew exactly what that one thing was that would come before him. We see a very similar principle from the beginning to the end. You remember in Genesis, first book of the Bible, uh, God comes to Abraham, and what does he tell Abraham? Abraham, give me your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Isaac, the one whom you waited for, 25 years, really 100, but you, you waited on the promise, 25 years for him, that one, the one whom you've raised and your heart has grown to love above all else, give him to me, remember? Saul, give me your kingdom. Peter, lay down your tough guy MO thinking you're never going to fall. You're never going to fall. You're never going to give up. You're the best of all the disciples. You're never going to do me wrong. You've got to lay down that part of who you are. Peter says, never. The great apostle Paul, who was first known as Saul, Bible says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was so highly respected by the government, highly respected by his peers. And what does God say? Saul, I want you to give it all up right now. Make a decision. Leave it all behind. Leave it all in the dust. Leave all of it behind you and turn and do the very thing and serve the the very people that you've been persecuting. And here, to the rich young ruler, He says, all that you have, give it to me. It has less to do with money and more to do with nothing can come before God. And brothers and sisters, the principles that we're going to learn about wealth, they have um, uh, application in all of our lives. Wealth might not be your thing. It might be Isaac. It might be power, it might be prestige, it might be whatever. But you will find that if you're truly going to be saved, nothing can come before God. Nothing. And in this situation, the young man had to prove it. Number two, it's about unconditional surrender. Unconditional surrender. That's what he was asking this young man to do. To surrender. Here's what it means. It means to yield something to the possession or power of another. That's what surrender means. And what God demands of us is unconditional surrender. I want to deal with the word unconditional in a moment but I want us to first wrap our minds around surrender. It's to yield to the power or possession of another. In fact, this right here is a universal sign of surrender. In war, 
It doesn't matter what language you speak, what nations are at war. This is a universal sign that says, I surrender. Don't shoot. And in the process of lifting these hands and saying, I surrender, I am also saying, I now submit to you. I, in essence, surrender my person into your power. God says, you want to be truly saved? You must come with unconditional surrender. And we can begin to see why this is so difficult for people of great wealth. Imagine the rich young ruler's thought is, all of it? Like, I'm super rich. I could give half of it away and help more than all these people combined. Why don't I just give half of it? Unconditional surrender. Jesus is saying, we're going to find out if I really own everything you have or not. Are you really, truly willing to surrender all that you are into his hands? And then we have this term, unconditional. It's self-explanatory. No conditions. There is no salvation with conditions. None. You can't make a deal with God. God, I'm going to repent and I'm going to serve you if you fix the life that I just messed up over the last 10 years. You're going to split hell wide open. Is God not worthy to serve regardless of what he does or doesn't do with the mess that you created? God, I'm going to serve you if... You'll get me out of this financial mess if you'll fix this thing in my life, if you'll fix my marriage, if you'll get me a husband or get me a wife, if you'll change this thing or that thing. There can be no conditions on our relationship with God. Either he is God and he deserves to be worshiped, he deserves to be surrendered to, he deserves all that you have, or he's not God at all. And what we see happening in this text, Jesus is testing this young man's heart to see just how true this young man is about following Jesus. Because Jesus says, you want to follow me? Takes all. I've often wondered about this young man. It's just something I've wondered. God would have told us if he wanted us to know, but I'm just telling you I've wondered it. I've often wondered if he would have said, yes, Lord if the Lord would have did the same thing with him that he did with Abraham. Hold on. I wasn't actually going to make you give it all away. I just want to know if you would. You remember, that's what happened with Abraham. Abraham gets all the way up to the mountain. He raises his hand, and God steps in and says, Whoa, hold on a second. It wasn't ever Isaac I wanted in the first place, son. I just wanted all of you there is to have. And I needed you to prove it to you. And ultimately, though, I knew you would do what you would do to prove it to me and to prove it to the world that there's nothing that come before me. And I've often wondered, because that's something we learn about the character of God. I wonder what would happen here. We, we, there's no way to know because the rich young ruler said, no, that's too much. Like I'm willing to give some, but unconditional surrender, no way. 
Brothers and sisters, we cannot be saved without unconditional surrender. If there's any part of our life that we're holding on to, like God, you can have 80%. You know, some of these things are going to be difficult to hear. This, not just this morning, but next week and in really the following week when we look at the link between salvation and stewardship. I'm going to tell you the reason they're difficult. They're difficult because we're going to find that a lot of us are falling short. And it's difficult because we see that according to God, he actually ties it to salvation to a degree. This isn't just about blessings and living more in the favor of God. You know, if you follow the Holy Spirit and then dealing with the negatives of quenching the Spirit and living in the flesh. Nope, this is about heaven and hell. And it's going to be difficult for us to receive some of this. Difficult in part because we want to believe everybody's saved. How many funerals you've been to where everybody was saved? You don't have to raise a hand. But let me tell you something. Everybody that dies at a funeral ain't saved. The majority of people are going to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. It teaches us first and foremost, there is no name given under heaven whereby men might be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. So there is only one way to the Father, that's through Jesus. So everybody, everybody who has died rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to hell. And then Jesus says, Matthew chapter 7, that in the end, many, that word is often translated most, it means more than half. We don't have a percentage, but here's what it says. More than half, many, will come in the end, and they will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do a lot of good things? They'll sound a lot like this rich young ruler. Do not commit adultery, check. Do not murder, check. Do not steal, check. Do not bear false witness. Don't be a liar. Check. Honor your father and mother. Check. Jesus says you're still not saved. Matthew 7, he said, many are going to come in the end. They're going to say, Lord, Lord. They knew what to call him. They know who he was. Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? Didn't we work in your name and serve in your name? And he said, I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. The number of people who think they're saved but aren't is a staggering thought. Now, here's what's mind-blowing to me. God gives us the clear answer. Right? That That young ruler, he wanted to know, what's the answer? Jesus gave it to him. Man, it was a simple answer too. Really easy. I want you to picture in your mind again that line and how small of the life that we have, just a tiny little portion of life. The rich young ruler had already lived, you know, a portion of his. All that Jesus said was for what remains, here's the one thing I want you to do and you'll inherit eternal life. And the rich young ruler said, no, not gonna do it. 
It's not that we're not saved because we don't know how. It's that we're not saved because we refuse to believe God and trust him. He gives the directions. It's about nothing coming before God, number two. It's about unconditional surrender, number three. It's about unquestionable trust in God. I want to define that word trust because it really is how we walk by faith. Trust. It means reliance on the integrity, strength, ability, or promise of a person or thing. Trust is to rely on the integrity of something else. So when we trust in God, we are relying on his integrity, on his power, on his ability. This rich young ruler was simply asked to have unquestioning trust in Jesus. Do you believe in his integrity? Do you believe that he wants what's best for you? Do you believe that his way is better? Do you believe that he holds the keys to eternal life? Do you believe that he is the son of God? Well, in this situation, simply trust him. Surely he would not tell you to do something. He would not give you an answer to eternal life that he would not back with his integrity and his power and his ability. Are you beginning to see it has very little to do with wealth and a whole lot more to do with our heart and how we view God? But the heart's deceitfully wicked, right? And the Bible tells us that the way of every man is right in his own eyes. So what God does, he gives us some very physical, concrete things that we can look at that will demonstrate what's going on in the heart. It's about unquestioning trust. Now, this trust in God, this relying on his integrity, his character, his power, his ability, his goodness, is ultimately what leads us to walk by faith. Faith is simply believing God and following God without knowing for a fact how it's all going to turn out. What we know for a fact is that it's going to turn out right because God is good. We don't know there's going to be, you know, there might be pain during the way. There might be some heartache during the way. There might be some hard lessons during the way. There might be some mountaintops and some valleys during the way. But whatever the way, if it's God's way, if it's God's leading in my life, I know that I know that I know that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So I trust God's direction and by faith, I follow God. Now, quick little side note. God is always calling us to walk by faith. Always. Not just at the moment of salvation. It will require faith at the moment of salvation. It will require this nothing before God mentality. It will require this attitude of unconditional surrender. God, I am all yours. It will require this, uh, this attitude of unquestioning faith and trust in God, where you're saying, ultimately, God, I don't totally understand like where this road's gonna lead, but I know that you're God 
and I know that I need you, and the answer is yes. Whatever, the, whatever you say, yes, God. That has to happen at the moment of salvation. You'll never have true salvation without it. But, brothers and sisters, God is constantly calling us to walk by faith. The Bible teaches us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So here's what that means. God will constantly be creating avenues for you and I to walk by faith. Unquestioning trust. You know why it's so hard to live by unquestioning trust? Because it doesn't always make sense. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the rich young ruler. Here's what we know about him. We know that he was an upstanding, you know, Jewish man. He knew all the commandments. Not only did he know them, he kept them. So if I put myself in his shoes, I'm kind of thinking to myself, what? I'm, my mind's running to everything I ever learned growing up. Wait a second. There's, you know, they only had the Old Testament, but that's a lot of Testament, huh? They had this. He's thinking, wait a second. I never, that was never tied to anybody else's faith before. Like, this does not make sense to me. And why all of it? You will find God knows exactly in your life what to call you to that will cause you to either move forward with unquestioning trust or prove you don't really trust him. And that's what it was for this man. Didn't make sense. You know, there's a lot of things in life that aren't going to make sense according to the Word of God. And the way that we as people bend the Word of God, we, we come up with excuses for why we're disobedient to the Word of God. We know God says, but... The lesson here is so important because, man, this is about eternal life. It's about salvation, brothers and sisters. But I will tell you, even setting salvation aside, if we were to do that, let's just say we were to do that, you will find that when you don't trust God with unquestioning trust and live by faith and obey his word, it always has damaging consequences in your life. It's harmful to us when we don't obey God. It's harmful to us when we don't trust him. And we think to ourselves, well, if you just explain it to me on the front end, God, I would do it. Like if God would have told you, can you imagine how meaningless Abraham's journey would have been if God would have pulled him off to the side and said, look, Abraham, we're going to make it look like I'm going to take your son, Okay. And I want you to tell everybody that you're going to sacrifice him, but don't worry, it's not going to happen. The story becomes meaningless. The journey becomes meaningless. God could have, Jesus could have pulled that rich young ruler aside and said, hey, listen, I'm the one that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I'm the one that if I need to, I can have you go catch a fish with a gold coin in his mouth. 
And so here's what's going to happen. You're going to give it all away, but here's how I'm going to bless on the back end. And in the end, here's what it's all going to look like. And it's going to be totally worth it. Doesn't require any trust. I know the plan. And God says to us, when I want a relationship with you, I want there to simply be this degree of trust. In fact, I'm, we're, we're going to look at this. That's why I want you to read all of Matthew 18 and the first 10 verses of 19. Oh, excuse me, Luke. All of, those, all, all of this scripture there has to deal with salvation. And if you just back up a few verses from the, the event that we read, you see Jesus talking about you got to have faith like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, as parents, there are some things we just need our children to just trust. And it's not always, it's not always because we just don't want to talk about it. It's because, like, they either don't need to know or they can't understand. Some of you have heard the story about um, the very first time my daughter was trying to wrap her mind around money and how we get things. And she's probably three and um, the pizza delivery guy showed up at our door. This was back in the day of when they took checks. If, you know, you're a high schooler, a check's like a piece of paper, and you can write on it an amount, and it equaled, you know, you could give it to people. Well, there was a time you could actually, like, buy pizza with checks. And a uh, pizza delivery guy shows up at the door. I sit down real quick. I write out a check. I hand it to him. He gives us pizza. And my daughter says to me at three years old, Daddy, how come you gave that pizza man our picture? She's trying to process what's happening. She's trying to understand why we get pizza when we hand people pictures. This is an example of, as an adult who understands how the world works, you know, I tried to explain to her a little bit what was going on, and she learned a little bit that day. But at the end of the day, she's just going to have to trust that her mom and dad are going to take care of her and that she don't have to understand how everything works and that when mommy and daddy say this is the way it is, she just has to trust this the way that it is. And you're going to find that God calls all of us into this relationship with him. And no matter how long you've been saved or whether you need to be saved this very morning, we are called to unquestioning trust. Had very little to do with the money. This was just the thing that Jesus was able to put his finger on to demonstrate in this young, rich, young ruler's heart. It's a funny question, a funny kind of response when he says you lack one thing. What we found this morning, he's already lacked three, right? That one thing revealed that there was this great distance in his heart from being at a place where he was truly ready to surrender and follow Christ. It's about nothing coming before God. Number two, it's about unconditional surrender to God. Number three, it's about unquestionable trust in God. And number four this morning, it's about absolute allegiance to God. Now, this particular point is going to introduce us to what the third sermon in this series is all about, stewardship. It's about absolute allegiance to God. Let me define that word allegiance. What it means is the loyalty of a citizen 
to his or her government. It can also mean the loyalty of a subject to his or her master. Allegiance. It's when, you know, I pledge my allegiance, my loyalty, my life to someone else. And when I do this, it's about absolute allegiance. Not 90%. God's not willing to take 95% of your life. Jesus died on a cross shedding his blood so that your sins could be forgiven because you were incapable of righting your wrongs, paying for your sins. He physically bled and died for you. No, he's not going to take 95%. How insulting is that? It's all or nothing, and it's about absolute 100% allegiance to his kingdom. Now, all of a sudden, all that I have, all that I own, my time, my talents, my treasures, everything that I have, is no longer devoted to my kingdom, but is devoted to his. Now, I want you to get that mental picture in your head of that big, long line that we had. And think of how tiny your little earthly kingdom is. Why would you devote anything to it in the first place? When you can instead devote it to his eternal kingdom. Why would you take what you have and burn it, if you will, in this tiny little section of meaningless earth time when you could instead be investing it and building his kingdom and changing all of eternity? See, it's about absolute allegiance. Now, to just give you a tiny taste of what to expect in the weeks to come, first of all, as we see, it has less to do with wealth and, and, and a whole lot more to do with the position of the heart. Wealth just kind of tells on us a little bit. It's one of those things you can put your finger on that really kind of tells a little bit about, about your heart. But this principle of allegiance to another kingdom is ultimately what it's about. And that's what Jesus was really checking this man here. Which kingdom are you devoted to? Yours or mine? Now, I'm going to give you an example. So I want you to come back on week three. I want you to come back next week, but especially week three, and really listen to the link between salvation and stewardship. But I want to give you an example of what's kind of what's happening here. So let's say that I am a business owner and I need some help building my company. And I employ this man here and as part of his responsibilities under my authority for my business, I'm going to give him $100,000. I'm going to give him some instructions on what he needs to do with it. How I want it to be spent portions of it that need to be used to purchase supplies, portions of it I want him to use to pay out bonuses, portions of it I want him to use for, you know, purchasing meals for the team on Thursdays. And let's just say, in theory, he has no money at all. I employ him. I give him that $100,000 and tell him, this is for the business. Here's what I want it to be used for. 
I asked the question, how much money does he have? Zero. Whose money is it? It's mine. The business owner. But I've put it in his hands and given him the responsibility to manage it based upon the instructions that I gave him. Now you're starting to maybe see why there's no rich men in heaven. Because no matter how much I hold, if I'm really God's, it's not mine. I don't actually have a dollar. It's all his. And you will find it starts to make sense as well why it's so hard. Why this applies to all of us. It's more difficult for someone with great wealth to really surrender it all and say it's all yours. I don't own a dollar. And you're going to find as we get into studying, you know what God tells you to do with some of it? Save some. That's what he tells you to do. Biblically, we're going to look at stewardship, all right? You're going to find that, no, this isn't the command to all of us, and the message here isn't going to end up with everybody go give away all your money and be homeless. That's not where we're going here. But until you fully, completely, totally, totally get it settled, that you owe absolute allegiance to God, that nothing can come before him, that he requires unquestioning trust and complete surrender, you'll never really be in the right position to be handling his money. And instead, you'll see it as yours. You'll feel like God should be somehow grateful that you gave a little portion of it. God says, no, this is not how it works in my kingdom. And if you have that mindset, it actually teaches something about how you view our relationship. God wants it all, brothers and sisters. I'm going to ask our worship team, if you guys would get in place. Jesus said that it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is about all or nothing. This is about absolute commitment to God. Unadulterated, unstained, but pure and complete, absolute allegiance to God. I ask you personally this morning, put wealth aside. I ask you this morning, have you truly, truly, come to a place with God where it's all or nothing? When I talked this morning about unconditional surrender, have you truly surrendered to God unconditionally? When I talk about unquestioning trust, every single one of us will relate to this point because God calls us to it. God calls us to just trust Him sometimes, and it doesn't make sense. It's like God's way of giving us an opportunity to walk by faith. I ask you this morning, have you been saying no to God because it didn't make sense? 
Are you that person that I talked about this morning where you're kind of like, God, if you'd help me understand how it's all going to work out, I'll go. And God says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell you what to do. And you're going to have to trust me that I'm good and that my ways are higher and that my ways are better and that I love you. This morning, have you truly And absolutely pledged allegiance to God, His kingdom, His name, His glory. One last time, I want you to get the picture of that line that we ran through here. And I want you to get the picture of how small your life is. And I want you to get the picture of how long eternity is. And I want you to get the picture that what you do here, it makes a difference for all of eternity. But nothing could matter more than knowing that you know that you know that you're saved. I told you when I started this sermon this morning, this, is, this sermon series is actually very little to do about wealth. It's about heaven. It's about salvation. It's about eternity. This morning, are you truly saved? And like the rich young ruler here, What are the things in your life you can point to that God has asked you to surrender? And is your story like his? I said, no. I left sorrowful from church that morning. I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew what the Holy Ghost was leading me to do, but there was too much that I wasn't ready to give up. Is your story like his? Or can you truly say, I gave it up. I surrendered. All that I have is God's. My life is God's. My life is His. I live for Him and for His glory. Can you truly say that this morning? Nothing could be more important.